0: Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Linda Ellerby. I was diagnosed with breast cancer 11 years ago, and I know how scary it can be. Everything your doctor says sounds like a foreign language. Her 2 new, oncogene, ductal carcinoma in situ. What do these words mean? How can you decide what to do if you can't even say what you have? Go to breastcancer.org, a special place on the Internet where you can learn how to say those words and find out what they mean. Breastcancer.org, the first place to go the minute you find out you have breast cancer.
1: Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keyes. I'm your host, Joy Keyes, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter dot com slash joy keys. And you can become a fan on Facebook. Just look up Saturday mornings with Joy Keys. And now I am on Instagram. Yes. Lots of great pictures. So you guys know I give away prizes. If you tag me on Instagram, you could win a prize. You know, I give away movie tickets and gift cards and all types of things. Signed books. So definitely follow on Twitter. Become a fan on Facebook and tag me on Instagram. I also just want to say thanks. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the podcast. We're past a million downloads. Wow. Thank you. I mean, it's just amazing, and I really appreciate the support. I'm assuming that you have enjoyed the show, and I hope that you will continue to listen and support. Well, today I have a wonderful author, playwright, activist, mom, artist, on the show this morning. She's been on the show before, and I'm really blessed to have her come back on again. I believe this is her on the line. This is uh, Pearl Clegg. This is Pearl Clegg. How you doing? Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for calling in again to do the show with me. Thanks so much for having me. Well, wow, you really exposed yourself in this new book. Um, as a memoir, and... As you mentioned in the beginning, your daughter was like, ah, mom, I don't want to read this stuff. (laughs) You know, I think there's two
2: kinds of people. There are people who will sneak and read your diary if you leave it out, and there's people who will not read it if you hand it to them. And I'm in the first category. I will read it if I find it. My daughter's in the second category. (laughs) She doesn't want to know your private thoughts. She's like, no,
1: thank you. Oh my God, that's so funny because I had a boyfriend when I was younger um, who I left in my house. You know, I trusted them that much and everything. And um, they found my journals and read in them. But they were on, honest enough actually to tell me that you know, oh, you know, I was looking for some of your writings and I came upon your journal. I'm like, okay, uh, <laughs> well, what did you find? And I was like, well, there was nothing in there that he didn't already know. So, you know, I was like, see, okay. (laughs) Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly.
1: um, And there's a certain point, I
2: think, in your life when you feel like, you know, this is who I am. Whoever that is, this is me. And these are all the experiences that led to this moment where I am myself. I'm fine with that. So I think that's the the part of your life that's really wonderful because you don't have to have any secrets from anybody. You are completely able to accept um, who you are, knowing that every single thing you did, the good, the bad, and the ugly, led you to the moment where you are right now.
1: Yeah, we're a combination. Nobody's all good or all bad. Nobody always makes the right choice and sometimes the right choice, yeah, sometimes the right choice for today is not the right choice for tomorrow. So we're always learning, you know, and growing and I think you show that uh, in your book, all the different sides of yourself. So again, like I say, kudos to you and it it is still very brave because some people aren't, you know, ready or comfortable to do that uh, and you decided so I, I say kudos to you for that. Thank you. So let's talk about some of the issues. Uh, one of the biggest ones that really resonated with me was being a mom and being an artist. So, mm-hmm. so difficult to juggle. Um, talk to the audience a little bit about some of your challenges, because um, some of them may I have read the book yet, um, in dealing with being a mom, being an artist.
2: Well, I think the thing is that you are um, in the position that any working parent is in. You want to give your best to your child, and you also want to do the work that um, that you need to do. For an artist, there's that additional overlay of the fact that you need a lot of time by yourself. You need to be alone to think about um, what, your, what your message is, what your uh, medium is, what is it that you're doing. And it's very difficult. You know, I used to laugh when I would read articles in um, feminist magazines where the woman would say, um, you know, I just put my baby on my lap and then I can just type my books and write my books and the baby just is on my lap while I'm writing and all that. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of baby is this? I don't don't have a child like that. You know, I mean, if I'm sitting in front of a keyboard, my little baby wanted to hit the keys. If I was writing, she wanted the pen. So that it, it really, I think, part of what happens is we present such an unreal view of the challenge of trying to juggle everything that you have to juggle. And I think as as writers, we have that, um, that absolute necessity to be able to be alone with your thoughts. And people looking at you from the outside will say, wow, what a great job you have. You're just sitting there staring out the window. But what you're really trying to do is to figure out what you know, what the truth is, and how to convey it to other people. And it's very difficult to do that, um, you know, with little children around. You have to do that, um, you know, that kind of juggling of time that that all working parents have to do um, and figure out when can you, you know, have a moment when the baby is sleeping and you're not putting in another load of laundry, you know, when you can sit down and think of stories to tell.
1: Right, and it's funny because in the book you wrote about a letter to um, your boss about, I'm going to have this baby, and I'm going to need this amount of time. It was very calculated, and I'll be back in two months, and, blah, blah, blah. and then you had the baby, and you were like, oh, my God, nobody told I me was about so this naive. part. I was so <laughs> yeah.
2: naive. I read that when I realized I still had that memo because that was I was working for Maynard Jackson, who was the first African-American mayor of Atlanta, and he had just been elected, and it was so exciting and wonderful. And I took a job working at City Hall, and then about, oh, a month or so after that, realized that I was pregnant when I got to City Hall. So I wrote him this memo saying just the kind of thing that you were saying, like, okay, don't worry about this. I'll work up until the moment that I have this child, and I'll be back, you know, in six weeks, and any work that I need to do, you know, just send it to me at home, and I'll be happy to do it. Because I had no idea what it was really like to be trying to juggle an infant. And I remember having come home from the hospital, and I was there about, oh, maybe a day and a half at home, and a car pulled up in the back, and a guy got out who I knew from City Hall, and he came to the door and said, yes! you know, congratulations. Oh God, we're all yes. so proud of you. And the mayor would like you to do some work on this speech and handed me an envelope, you know. So I'm sitting there <laughs> nursing on my left side, right, on my right side. And it was, it was just trying to, to keep up that, fantasy that you can do everything all at the same time. And I think that was one of the big things that um, that was something we had to really come to terms with in the women's movement, that, you know, as much as we want to say we can do everything. We can do it all, the same kinds of jobs. We can do the same kinds of things. A lot of that is true. But somebody is going to have to take care of those babies if you have babies. Somebody is going to have to do it. doesn't have to be the mother. It can be the father. But it has to be a factored into the work you think you're going to do because otherwise you just are, you know, um, taken by surprise. Even though you think you're ready for it, you think you can organize your way Around those challenges, you really can't, because I was very well organized. But it, you know, the mm. baby doesn't care about that. You can rush home no. from city hall because you need to nurse in the next <laughs> twenty minutes, and the baby sleeps. They don't care about that. So it's it's all those kinds of things that you learn, I think, as you go, and you just have to try to adjust as best you can.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's all you can do. It's a learning process. And you mentioned some of your friends who really had some difficult times with depression, if you were almost like I felt that it was like they were having postpartum depression. And that's something that people still don't talk about. They just talk about the happiness, like, oh, you're having a baby, oh, great. And then, like you said, right. you have the baby and you're kind of alone. And people are like, I don't know what to do or how to deal and with you're this, or just not supposed to that.
2: talk about it. I think you're absolutely right, because I think at that point, I don't remember anybody even saying the words postpartum depression. You know, I don't think it was discussed even as much as it is now. But there is that pressure to act like you're handling it. You know, everything is great. I've got it under control. I know what I'm doing. I'm running my house. I'm doing my job. I'm doing everything that I did exactly the way I did it before I had the baby. And, we're, you know, we do each other a disservice as women when we buy into that fantasy and pretend that we don't know how hard it is, pretend that we don't know that it's a big adjustment and that you have to figure it out so that we end up trying to figure it out all alone rather than if we could talk honestly to the women that we know, our friends, our family, you know, even the people at our jobs and say, you know, this is really hard. What did you do, you know, when you had Mm this situation? What did you do? Then at least you wouldn't feel so isolated. I mean, you know, that's why I laughed when I um, read the journal entry that I did include in the book about being able to keep time by the TV shows that were on.
1: Right? I would yes. just turn
2: the television on to hear some adult voices and it's like you know, I read that and said, How sad were you? <laughs> that
1: was terrible. You know, that you're keeping no. time by when the
2: Joker is wild is so on. But it was it was just going from lots of very high level high discussion all the time with adults to being in the house all day alone with a little baby. And it was a much bigger adjustment, um, than I thought it was gonna be. But I you know, I did what what people do. I figured it out.
1: Well, talking about adult conversations, you um, also exposed just the different types of relationships you had with different individuals, um, and that was, again, I also say very brave. Um, but one of the things um, that's interesting is we talk about the sexism an issue, and this goes back to, again, balancing. And as a woman, you have to give to the relationship that you have with the man or with the woman, depending on you know your um, choice, Um, or, you know, your decision, who you're you're in love with. Then also you have to take care of the baby. Then you have your art and all these things. And the feeling of I have to do the dishes as a woman. So there's this sexism going on. Uh, It still happens today. I'm, I'm the one that does the dishes, and he's the one that, you know, comes home and relaxes, and I'm the one that has to cook the food. Do you feel that that has changed? I think that is still going on today.
2: I think it's still going on a lot. I think it's changed some. Um, I think we have um, more uh, vocabulary to talk about it, but I think there is a lot of talk about it, but not necessarily a lot of change has actually happened in people's individual households. Um, You know, and that's really where the feminist um, changes have to actually take place in every house, you know, house by house by house. And so we have magazines talking about, you know, division of labor and we have people talking about how men are doing more, but a lot of um, people are still in the same patterns that they um, were in in the 50s, same patterns they were in in the 60s, because it's very difficult to get people to change their expectations of what marriage is supposed to be. And many men still have, even though they've, you know, might have been raised by mothers who call themselves feminists and have taken women's these courses in college or have heard these discussions, many men still have a very traditional attitude about the division of labor within a household. This is what, you know, the man goes out and brings back money. The woman stays in the house and runs it and takes care of the children. And that rarely factors in the fact that in the modern world, the woman also goes out and brings back money so that if everybody's Mm -hmm. going out into the world, everybody has to also be um, responsible for keeping that in the house world running, and that child, you know, somebody's got to go to the baseball game. Somebody has to go to the dance concert, you know, because the kids has are, to go are our still little, conference. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Somebody has to check that homework. You know, somebody has to make sure those shoes are, are ready for the morning, all of that, and it's um it's something that has to be really thought about um in a very conscious way or else that can be a um a real stress point in a relationship between people because it's it's very hard to um you know to to factor in before you have a child how much actual work Um, is going to go into just the maintenance that's required. You know, you can grab something, you know, to eat and not think about the nutritional value if it's just you. But if it's your three-year-old, you don't necessarily want to, you know, just give them any old thing. You want to make sure that they get some good food. Yeah, you don't want to do McDonald's all the time, and you shouldn't be doing Mm -hmm. that for yourself either. But, um, (laughs) you know, just the, the planning that has to happen. Um, and then the pleasure of it, you know, we talk a lot about the the maintenance demands, but the um, the other thing is that if you have no time because you're working so hard and because you're trying to keep you know the house spotless and all of that, you miss the pleasure of being able to spend yes. an afternoon playing with your kid, you know, just taking yeah. them outside and let them look at the leaves, you know, take them out when the moon is out and let them look at the moon, you know, all those things that that make a childhood rich. Um, and make those relationships last, you know, past the time the kid is, you know, five or six years old, are those conversations that you start when they're babies, I think. I really do. And if you don't have oh, time yeah. to do it, then you miss the pleasure of it.
1: Well, I think also that's a memory for the child. They're, they're, they may not remember, they may remember you being stressed. I remember my daughter telling me different things, but they also remember the the happy things and maybe you being silly and maybe you getting on the floor with them and, and playing with the right. play Um going. Yeah. They remember you being at the play or not at the play that you were in. Right. Um, you know, they remember um, you disciplining them, but they also remember you teaching them, you know, how to get from point A to point B. I and mean, then I, for myself, I remember my dad specifically trying to teach me how to um, get from point A to point B, and I was really sad, but then now it made me very resourceful. But then I also remember him reading me The Monkey King, you know, and all types of Mm -hmm. things. So um, I think that's important not just for the child but also for the parent. That's the balance. You know, that's the good of being a parent. That's the joy that you get back, I think. uh, And it's hard to describe
2: that, too people talk a lot about the pressure of it, you know, how difficult it is, mm-hmm. how expensive it is, But it's and it's, it's funny because we talk a lot more about that than we do about the pleasure of, you know, sitting on the floor with that Play-Doh, the dread Play-Doh, you yes. know, or right. doing puzzles or playing Uno or, you know, whatever it is that we do, it really is such a private pleasure that we often, even those of us who are writers, don't write about that as often as we write about, you know, the hard parts. Um, which I think yeah. is true of many things. We write about the hard parts of love affairs rather than the sweetness of it, you know, the difficulties of marriage rather than the, the real joy when it's going good.
1: Yeah. Now, talking about sexism, there's also, you are a, were an activist for a long time. It's funny, when I was reading, I was like, oh, my God, wait, she's only 30 now. Like, as I was going through and reading the book, you know, oh, she's 25. Okay, now she's, oh, my God, darn, she was really young when she was doing all these things, you know. So, I. I Let's talk about that. I mean, that took a lot of bravery also that you got involved in the movement at such a young age. Do you think now kids are not as involved, and how can we get them involved? Because the same issues still exist. There's still black people going to jail. Unfortunately, instead of going to jail for the movement or for the freedom of the people, they're being taken to jail, um, you know, and, and put in there by huge numbers more than anybody in the whole globe we have more people in jail there's the you know prison industrial complex so my question is one how did you feel being so young in the movement but how can we get kids now involved uh in helping you know with black freedom because it's still needed
2: i really loved growing up in the movement my family was a very activist family my father um was very involved in the civil rights movement mom My mother, my stepfather, they had a newspaper. My father used to run for office. They, you know, they did a lot of um, movement activities all the time so that I grew Mm -hmm. up in a house where that was just part of what we did. That was part of the conversation Um, so that it wasn't something that I came to later. It was actually a part of the fabric of my growing up life so that, you know, by the time I'm, you know, 25 years old, I had been in demonstrations and movements and all of that my whole life so that it it didn't – I didn't feel like I was young getting involved in something because it was just part of how I grew up. And I think that part of what we see now is that um, so many of the goals that we had, so many of the things that we did – um, struggle so hard for, like voting rights and the Voting Rights Act, those kinds of things, um, since those have uh, passed, they're now legal, that I think sometimes people feel there's no more work to be done, which is so not true. There's so much work to be done. I mean, just the the onslaught of police brutality cases that we've seen lately, just the prison numbers that you mentioned, you know, we know that there is a lot of work to do, but I think that part of what happens is that young people now are not connected to movements. They're aren't big movements. You know, when I was growing up, the civil rights movement was something that touched everybody. Everybody wasn't in it, but everybody knew Mm -hmm. about it. Everybody knew where to go if they wanted to get in it, where the demonstration was going to be, where the activist office was. But now that's not true. You know, every four years or so, there'll be a flurry of activity because it's a presidential election. But in terms of just every day, knowing that this is an ongoing movement, um, and I I grew up with the civil rights movement, then the women's movement, the anti-war movement, so that the idea of groups of people getting together to change things for the better was very much a part of my reality. I don't think young people have much of that now. They don't feel connected Um, to a group that is trying to do something um, historic, that is trying to really change the way the, the country operates. And I think that's tragic because that's why they don't vote. Um, That's why Mm the issues that are, are so critical to their individually young lives are not really things that come up until there's a tragedy, until there's a Michael Brown, until there's a Trayvon Martin, and then they think about it for a moment, but then they go back to doing what they were doing. There isn't a sustained movement that they can plug into, and I think that's a real problem.
1: Well one of the things I always talk about on the show is people mentoring young people because they don't have a family like you do, you know, like you did growing up. They may not have that in their um blood, so to speak, so they don't even know where to begin, or they may feel like you know, what's the point? It's not working I mean, so what? I'm gonna go and vote that doesn't make a difference they They can't see the connection between voting and actually some change happening in their community, and I think that small things need to happen. Maybe it's not a big thing. Maybe you're sweeping the street. You know, maybe you're, um, you know, walking, you know, the women home. Maybe, you know, you're um, helping playing with the kids. There's small things, I think, that can improve the community, but young people don't know how to go about doing that because, again, they may not have had that upbringing that you did. Um, Real quick, we're kind of getting close to our time, but one of the things also that resonated with me was um, your friend Kay. You had a a white Mm -hmm. friend Kay, and and one of the sentences – she talked about was because um, you didn't look black, you mm-hmm. really didn't have to deal with um, this black issue, you know. Um, and I that resonated with me because I had a white friend when I was growing up. I'm light. I'm not as light as you, but I'm I'm light. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, her mom was the same like Kay's mom. Her mom actually was racist, but I was one of yeah. the nice black people, you know, that she let in the house. Um, and it was just crazy. Um, that still happens today, you know. This um, issue... It's it's weird. Like, I feel like sometimes I'm not black enough. Like, I wish I was darker and that people would believe well, you that know, I'm black. Because people always ask me, you know. Go ahead. Go
2: ahead. Yeah. It's such a weird um, kind of thing, the the whole idea of race in this country. You know, because we know that, that race was pushed forward as something that could divide us, you know, because people had slaves. They were buying and selling. You know, white people were buying and selling black people so that there was a reason that race was pushed forward as something that was really important and it's you know when you think about it there's so much craziness you know okay this is a group of black people but then we're going to separate them out from who's the darker ones who's the lighter ones who's the ones with the straight hair who's the ones with the light eyes all of that madness that goes right back to to slavery but that that conversation that I had with Kay was I had grown up in such um, all black environments that I really didn't have any white friends. I knew some, you know, white kids and, you know, but not at my school. My school was all black. My neighborhood was all black. My church was all black. So that in terms of people that I got to know well enough to call them friends, that didn't happen until I was here in Atlanta in my 20s. So that I really wanted to make sure that I got all the racial stuff out on the table so that we wouldn't have that horrible moment where we're friends and then the white friend says something so really insulting that you just can never be Mm. friends again. So I was always right. trying to bring up anything that might be a problem to say, okay, there is no circumstance where any white people are allowed to use the word nigger. That's not acceptable. So just know that as we become friends, that can never be something that comes out of your mouth. And it was important to me to be able to tell her that, and to tell anyone else that I consider a friend, because sometimes people don't even realize how they're offending you. You know, with the with the with the use of the word, they'll know they're offending you. Right. But Comments about hair, comments about skin color, comments about family. A lot of that is stuff that unless you have had friendships across color lines, they don't know and we don't know. So it's important to tell people, you know, what the truth is. I met a, a Navajo man um, who was on a uh, panel with me at the National Endowment giving out grant, and there was another Native American um, person there who was a Sioux. And when the man who was a Sioux was late, the uh, Navajo guy turned to me and said, of course he's late. Isn't that just like a Sioux? I had no idea. Mm. I don't know what right. the Navajos say about the Sioux. That's like TV right. time, you know, so I wanted to know. I said, I don't know. Is that just like a Sioux? And then he would <laughs> tell me that this is how they tease each other. This is what they say. But I was, I was comfortable enough with him to ask him what that meant, and he was comfortable enough to tell me because we don't know. I hadn't grown up around Navajo and Sioux. I don't know how they tease each right. other you know, any more than he would have known if I had said, you know, isn't that just like an African-American CP time? He would have said, what? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know, so we all Mm -hmm. have to be able to befriend each other, I think, over these gulfs that are not really gulfs once we get up on them, because at the heart of it, we all are just poor little human beings trying to struggle through and do the right thing.
1: (laughs) Definitely, definitely trying to do the right thing. And that's um, something I think that through your book you were, you were growing literally in age, but, you know, again, like I said, the right decision that you made today may not be the right decision for tomorrow. So we have to forgive ourselves, I think, and have compassion for ourselves a little bit uh, in our choices that we make um, because we're always growing. I think until the day you die, you, you hopefully exactly. you'll be growing and learning. And communication, I think, is the key. Just what you just mentioned about, you know, being comfortable to ask this person, well, I don't know, well, is that what you say or how, and for that person also to be open to that and be willing to explain and not get frustrated and angry because sometimes that happens too with people right? Like, you know, I don't want to talk about this, you know, I, I don't want to discuss this, uh, you should know mm-hmm. or, you know, F you or, you know, they go really far um, yeah. and, and um, not able to share because in sharing, yeah. we become closer, you know. I think you agree that. Yeah, and to that? assume it's
2: that the person means well, that, that ignorance doesn't necessarily mean hostility. Sometimes people just don't know. And you can be mm-hmm. open to telling them, and then next time they'll understand. They won't repeat that. You know, but somebody right. has to stop long enough to say, you know, when you say that, we really hate that. We get offended when you say that. We get offended when this happens, and this is why. So don't say that. And if the person is a good person, they'll say, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I'll never do it again. And then you've changed Mm -hmm. somebody who then can change somebody who can change somebody else.
1: Wow, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show. I wish uh, you much success with this book, Things I Should Have Told My Daughter. Of course, there's things I should tell my daughter. (laughs) And And I, 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 (laughs) I, well, she's 20 now. She's 20, so I'm sorry to tell her. her. She's good. Yeah, uh, she's good. yeah she's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book, so I encourage everybody to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter or become a fan on Facebook. Also, check out um, Pearl's website. Um, she has her own website. Also, check her out on uh, Twitter, P. Um, Clegg, her last name, uh, uh, on Twitter. You can follow her there and learn all her different ideas and um, new plays. Oh, let's just mention real quick, you had a play that came out, um, uh, What I Learned in Paris. Um, right. Is that still running? Um,
2: it's not running here in Atlanta. It actually just finished a really wonderful run in uh, Los Angeles, and it's going to be okay. in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, coming up in a couple of months, and then again in Indianapolis in a couple of months. So okay. it's it's out and about in the world, which is wonderful.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that, and I can encourage everybody to follow her on Twitter and check out her website. She also is on Facebook, so you can check out there to learn when, the play, when and where the play is going to be. And, again, I'm going to be giving away copies of our book. Thank you so much for coming on this morning.
2: Thank you, as always, for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: All right. You have a great weekend, okay?
2: You too. Thank you.
1: Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, just got off the phone with a wonderful author, playwright, activist, artist. Oh, my gosh. She has so many titles, mom. Um, Again, pick up a copy of her book, Things I Should Have Told My Daughter, Lies, Lessons, and Love Affairs, and again, follow me, and you might win a copy. Uh, Stay tuned. I'm going to be speaking with another author about her book, Yavo, Alexis DeVoe, and uh, you might win a copy of that book as well. Again, stay tuned. Have a wonderful Saturday, everybody.
0: Hi, I'm Linda Ellerby. I was diagnosed with breast cancer 11 years ago, and I know how scary it can be. Everything your doctor says sounds like a foreign language. HER2-new, oncogene, ductal carcinoma in situ. What do these words mean? How can you decide what to do if you can't even say what you have? Go to breastcancer.org, a special place on the Internet where you can learn how to say those words and find out what they mean. Breastcancer.org, the first place to go the minute you find out you have breast cancer.